Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. Here in the first two chapters of Luke, we see the Lord working through some of the elderly saints in his church. Back in chapter one, we read about the Lord using Zacharias and Elizabeth. Uh, they were introduced in uh, 1-7 as both well advanced in years. And yet they were people God used to bring about the forerunner to the Messiah. Uh, they were the parents of John the Baptist. And here in our sermon text, we read of the Lord working through another elderly man and woman. Uh, the woman's name is Anna. Uh, we read in verses 36 and 37 that she was married for seven years. And, th- and then Luke writes that she was a widow of about 84 years. Now it's not clear how we're supposed to understand this statement. Uh, Luke might be saying that Anna was widowed after seven years of marriage, and then she was 84 years old at the time uh, the events of our sermon texts are taking place. Or Luke might be saying that Anna lived as a widow for 84 years after her husband's death. And if this latter interpretation is correct, then Anna would be probably over 100 years old. Uh, depending on how old she was when she was married, she could have been 105, maybe even 110 years old when the things in our sermon text were taking place. But either way, however we choose to uh, interpret that, Anna was in her golden years. Luke doesn't tell us how old Simeon was, but biblical scholars generally agree that he was an elderly man because it's pretty apparent in our sermon text that Simeon um, expected to die soon. Uh, Verse 26 tells us that the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then when Simeon did see the Lord's Christ, uh, held the baby Jesus in his arms, he says in verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Luke is showing us how the Lord was working through some of the elderly saints in his church. And this is helpful for us to notice because sometimes we start to feel less useful when we get old. And it's not difficult to understand why. And I'm not saying that it's true that we become less useful when we get old, but it's not difficult to understand why an older person might be feeling this way. For a variety of different reasons, a person's ministry within the body of Christ might need to change when they get older. Physical limitations are one of the most obvious of these reasons. When a person's physical strength and stamina declines with age, that person might need to transition out of the service role that they had been serving in for many, many years. As much as they might wanna continue serving in that particular role, the physical limitations brought on by age may prevent them from doing so, often prevent them from doing so. And when this happens, it's not uncommon for the aging person to begin feeling less useful, less valuable. They they see the things that they can no longer do and they begin to feel less valuable within the body of Christ or within the local church. 
In such cases, it's important to remember that a person's value is not determined by their physical strength and abilities. A person's value is not determined by their physical strength and abilities. What makes a person valuable is that Jesus calls them a friend. Think of it this way. How important would you feel if Elon Musk made a special trip to California so he can come and have dinner at your house? Or how important would you feel if Taylor Swift canceled one of her shows so she could attend your birthday party? (laughs) Most of us would feel pretty important if such prominent personalities took that type of interest in us, right? Rescheduling their busy schedule in order to accommodate us? Well, how important does it make you feel to know that the second person of the Godhead descended from his heavenly dwelling and took on human flesh so that he could shed his precious blood for you? This is a good example of why theology matters. The scriptures teach us that Jesus died only for the sins of the elect. Uh, He did not die for everybody. He only died for the elect. And we saw this recently in a sermon I preached from Matthew 1. In Matthew 1 verse 21, the angel told Joseph that Jesus will save his people from their sins. His people, Jesus' people. Not everybody, but Jesus came to save his people only his people from their sins. And Jesus made this same point in John 10, verse 11. He said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for who? For the sheep. The good shepherd did not give his life for the goats. The good shepherd only gave his life for the sheep. And again, four verses later, Jesus says, and the father knows me, and so I know the father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And the point I'm making here is that Jesus was deliberate and intentional when he went to the cross. It was very clear to him that he was about to lay his life down for certain people and not for other people. He knew that he was laying his life down for the sheep, for his people, for those that he calls friends, which means if you are in Christ, then you are counted amongst those specific people that Jesus came to seek and to save. Now I say that this is an an example of why theology matters because if you believe that Jesus laid his life down for everybody, then that changes something significant about your relationship with him. If you say that Jesus died for everybody, you're actually saying that Jesus did not specifically die for anybody. Rather, he died for all humanity in a generic sense and then left it up to each individual to choose whether they want to receive the gift of his atonement. Uh, So according to this perspective, if you're enjoying a salvific relationship with Jesus today, then that's because you chose Jesus. You are enjoying his love, his mercy, his friendship because you chose him. But when you understand the Bible to teach that Jesus died specifically and only for his elect, then that changes how your relationship with him was established. 
Uh, the reason you're enjoying his love, mercy, and friendship today is because he chose you. It's because he came down from heaven specifically for you. He took on flesh specifically for you. He lived in uh, his perfect life of, of obedience to God's law specifically for you. And he died specifically for you. Knowing that Jesus did all of this specifically for you demonstrates the value that he has conferred upon you. In other words, uh, he didn't die for you because you're valuable. You're valuable because he died for you. Uh, you're valuable in the kingdom of God, not because you have a lot of physical strength and stamina and able to do a lot of service roles within the church, but because Christ shed his precious blood for you. That's why you're valuable. That's what makes you valuable. It's because Christ shed his precious blood for you. So to the aging Christians in our congregation, don't ever think that your inability to serve in the ways you used to serve makes you less valuable in the kingdom of God. Sure, uh, your ministry role might need to change as you age, but don't think of, don't think of this as a downgrade. Uh, don't think of this as a demotion. Uh, this is not a transition from valuable kingdom work to less valuable kingdom work. Rather, it's a transition from one type of ministry to another. And the ministry work many elderly Christians transition to is that which involves training, instructing, mentoring, and counseling. Proverbs 20, verse 29 says that the splendor of old men is the gray head, their gray head. The splendor of old men is their gray head. And this is telling us that older Christians are typically wise and mature Christians. When a person has been walking with the Lord for many years, that person has typically acquired a lot of godly wisdom, godly wisdom that can be shared to the benefit of other people. But understand, it's not the gray hair that makes the person wise. Rather, it's the many years of walking with the Lord. Um, it's the many years of sanctification. Proverbs 16 verse 31 makes this very point. It says, the silver-haired head is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness. Did you hear the qualification Proverbs 16.31 is making? The silver-haired head is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness. If it is found in the way of righteousness. This is telling us that not everybody who has, a silver, has silver hair is mature in the Christian faith. Not everybody who has silver hair is qualified to train, instruct, mentor, and give wise counsel to other people. It's only those silver-haired people who have been walking in the way of righteousness for many years who are qualified for this role. The Bible tells us how we can identify those who have been walking in the way of righteousness for many years. 1 Timothy 5.10 tells us that the woman who has been walking in the way of righteousness for many years will have brought up children, lodged strangers, washed the saints' feet, and cared for the afflicted. 1 Peter 3 verses 2 through 4 tell us that her respectful uh, and pure con conduct, along with the incorruptible beauty of the hidden person of her heart, will be evidence 
her gentle and quiet spirit is, is not only precious in the sight of God, but it's also very precious in the sight of everyone who spends time with her. Titus 2 verse 3, along with 1 Timothy 5.13, says that she's not a slanderer, nor is she given to much wine. She's not idle during the day, uh, nor is she a gossip, nor is she a busybody wandering about from house to house saying things that she ought not. Rather, the many years of sanctifying grace have produced godly character in her that reveals itself in reverent behavior and temperate attitudes. She gives respect and love to her husband and she's faithful in all things. Likewise, the scriptures tell us how to identify the man who's been walking in the way of righteousness for many years. According to Titus 2 verse 2, he'll be sober-minded, reverent, temperate, sound in doctrine, sound in faith and love and in patience. 1 Timothy 3, verses 2 through 6 says that he won't be puffed up with pride. He won't be greedy for money. He won't be quarrelsome. He won't be covetous. Rather, he'll be a man who is sound in the faith, have a good testimony in his community, and be wise in applying biblical knowledge to life. Titus 1, verse 6 says that uh, he will have faithful children, not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. In other words, the silver-haired man who's been walking in the way of righteousness for many years will be wise and discerning. He'll be skilled in the art of godly living. He'll be a man who fears the Lord. And we conclude, therefore, that mature, silver-haired Christians have a unique ministry within the body of believers. Uh, they, while they may have lost some of their physical strength, that they used to have, they have grown in their spiritual strength over the years. And so their unique ministry is to speak the Lord's wisdom and instruction to other Christians. Uh, their unique ministry is to speak the Lord's wisdom and instruction to other Christians, especially to other Christians who are younger. And that's what Simeon and Anna are doing in our sermon text. Both of them speak the Lord's wisdom and instruction to other people. Simeon speaks the Lord's wisdom and instruction to Joseph and Mary, who are younger, and Anna speaks the Lord's wisdom and instruction to some of the other people who were in the temple, those who were seeking redemption in Jerusalem, which would have included Joseph and Mary. Notice what Luke writes about Simeon and the Holy Spirit. Three times in three verses, Luke states that Simeon was guided by the Holy Spirit. In verse 25, he writes that the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. In verse 26, he writes that the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon that he won't see death until he sees the Lord's Christ. And in verse 27, Luke writes that Simeon was led into the temple by the Holy Spirit. Luke's Repetitive statements about the Holy Spirit's influence upon Simeon is an indication of the Lord's grace upon Simeon. Realize, Simeon lived during a time in where there was great apostasy amongst the Jews. The Pharisees and Sadducees were the prevalent religious parties in Israel. And as you know, both of these parties were enemies of the cross. They were legalists. They liked to bind heavy burdens on the backs of people. They did not understand mercy. They didn't understand grace. 
They hated Jesus to the extent that they falsely accused him so that they could have him crucified by the Romans. They had a lot of influence over the temple and the Jewish religion, and yet they were apostates. Simeon was a man who remained righteously devoted to the Lord even in the midst of this great apostasy. This is because the Holy Spirit had regenerated Simeon's heart. And Simeon responded obediently to the Spirit's guidance. And this is why Luke tells us, writes in verse 25, that Simeon was a just and devout man. Just, meaning he was righteous and honorable in his, in his relationships with his fellow man. And devout, meaning he was devoted to the Lord. In other words, Simeon loved the Lord and loved his neighbor. He loved the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself. Isn't that what we've been taught to expect from silver-haired saints who've been walking in the way of righteousness for many years? Simeon is a fine specimen of a silver-haired saint. He was just and devout. He responded obediently to the Spirit's guidance. And Luke says in verse 25 that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. You see, Simeon understood that the religious leaders in Israel were indeed apostate, but Simeon also understood that the Lord had promised to send a Messiah to Israel and that the Messiah would bring consolation to Israel or comfort to Israel. Isaiah 40 is one of the chapters Simeon would have identified as a messianic prophecy. And it's in Isaiah 40 that we read, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low, the crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, as many of you know, uh, this is the prophecy that's connected with John the Baptist, uh, whose job it was to declare Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, well, Isaiah 40 this messianic prophecy begins with these words. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is the comfort Simeon was waiting for. He knew this comfort from the Lord was coming because Isaiah had prophesied that it was coming. Moreover, the Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he would not see death until he would see the Messiah. And so he knew the consolation of Israel was just around the corner. And being a just and devout man, Simeon yearned for the consolation of Israel. He greatly wanted the Messiah to come. He wasn't looking at the apostate Jews with animosity and hostility, hoping they would get what's coming to them. He was looking for the consolation of Israel, which would bring redemption to Jerusalem. So you can imagine his joy when the Spirit led him into the temple, and he saw Joseph and Mary presenting their baby boy to the Lord. Luke tells us that Simeon took Jesus up into his arms, and he began to bless God. Lord, 
Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Verse 33 says that when Joseph and Mary heard this, they marveled at the things Simeon had spoken about Jesus. Now to marvel does not mean that they doubted or hesitated to believe what Simeon had just said about their baby boy. Rather, it means that Joseph and Mary were amazed at what Simeon said. They were astounded at his words, in the good sense of that word, believing and yet astounded. This silver-haired saint had just declared some of the most magnificent truths that they had uh, uh, the same truth that they had previously heard from the angel Gabriel. And this was a glorious confirmation of the truth that Joseph and Mary had heard from the angel Gabriel, the very truth that they had been walking in by faith, that they had received and walked in, and now they're hearing these very truths being confirmed by this silver-haired saint named Simeon, and this was an encouragement to Joseph and Mary's faith. Brothers and sisters, God will often use the silver-haired saints in your life to encourage your faith. As they speak the Lord's truth to you, they're able to help you in your Christian walk because these silver-haired saints have been walking in the way of righteousness for many years. They have a lot of wisdom to share. They have a lot of discernment. They're skilled in the art of godly living and they're happy to share their counsel with you. If you're a young person right now, I want to encourage you to identify the silver-haired saints in your life. Uh, Who do you know that's been walking in the way of righteousness for several decades? If you're a young lady, uh, then who do you know? Do you know, let's say, one or more silver-haired women who have brought up children, shown hospitality to strangers, washed the feet of the saints, and cared for the afflicted? Do you know some silver-haired ladies who are faithful in all things, who display the incorruptible beauty of the hidden person of their heart, whose gentle and quiet spirit is very precious, and who respect and love their husbands? If so, then put forth the effort to spend time with these women. Learn from them. Let them teach you how to be discreet, self-controlled, reverent, kind, a homemaker, and faithful in all things. If you're married or plan to be married, then let them teach you how to love your husband. If you have children or plan to have children, then let them teach you how to love your children. You won't regret the expense of time and effort this takes because you will be blessed by these silver-haired ladies. Your heart will rejoice and your bones will be made healthy from the godly training and instruction that you receive from them. And if you're a young man, then do you know one or more silver-haired men who are sober-minded, sound in doctrine, sound in faith and love and in patience? Do you know a few older men who have a good testimony in in the community? who are wise and applying biblical knowledge to life and who have demonstrated that they rule their own houses well? If so, then 
Put forth the effort to spend time with these men. Learn from them. Let them teach you how to be sober-minded, how to be a model of good works and to have dignity and and integrity. Uh, Learn reverence from them. Let let their lives teach you how to be dignified, incorruptible, and self-controlled. Young men, you won't regret the expense of time and effort it takes you to do this because you will be blessed by these silver-haired men. You will grow in your faith and your ability to lead your wife and your family, and you'll learn sound speech that cannot be condemned so that your opponents may be ashamed and have nothing evil to say of you. Whether you're a, a young man or a young lady, if you have the privilege of spending time with silver-haired saints, well, one of the things you might ask them is to let you eavesdrop on their devotional time with God. Observe their patterns of praising the Lord. Listen intently to how they pray. I say this because that's part of what Joseph and Mary were doing with Simeon. If you carefully read verses 28 through 32, you'll see that Simeon is not actually talking to Joseph and Mary. He's talking to God. But Joseph and Mary benefited from listening to Simeon talk to God. They marveled at the things that they heard him say as he talked with God. And so it can be Uh, And so it can be for you as well. If you're able to listen to eavesdrop into the conversation wise, immature, silver-haired saints are having with their Lord during their devotional time, you may find yourself marveling at what you hear. After Simeon praised God for allowing his eyes to see the Lord's salvation, verse 34 says that he had something to say directly to Mary. He says to her, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And as he's saying this, he inserts in there a parenthetical statement telling Mary, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Now Simeon is here declaring or describing the dark and costly side of God's redemptive plan. Understand, this is the first time in the Gospels that we read about the strife and division Jesus is going to incite. This is the first time that we read about the suffering Jesus will endure. Up until this point, Joseph and Mary have only heard the positive side of things. They were told that their son is going to be great, that he will be called the son of the highest, and that he will save his people from their sins. They were told that the Lord will give Jesus the throne of his father David, that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and that his kingdom will have no end. But now, Simeon is telling Mary that sorrow and suffering are in store. In so many words, Simeon explains that Jesus is going to experience conflict, hatred, envy, and persecution. And then Simeon adds that Mary is going to experience something tragic as well. A sword will pierce through your own soul, he says to Mary. This has suddenly become a story that involves suffering. It's become evident to Joseph and Mary that God has ordained for their son to suffer. 
And yet, notice where God ordained for this suffering to take place. Notice where God ordained for the preparation of this suffering to take place. It's within the structure of a loving family. It's within the structure of a loving family that's faithfully devoted to obeying the word of the Lord. When God sent his son to tabernacle amongst us, he placed him in a family where, so when, when, when God sent his son to, to take on flesh, to tabernacle amongst us, he placed him in a family where, uh, where Jesus would be raised and nurtured by God-fearing uh, parents. If you have any doubts that Joseph and Mary were God-fearing parents, then you only need to notice how Luke emphasizes their obedience to God's law by his repeated references to God's law. Uh, The repetition is difficult to miss. In verse 22, he writes about Mary's days of purification being completed according to the law of Moses. In verse 23, he writes that Jesus was presented to the Lord as as it is written in the law of the Lord In verse 24, Luke tells how Joseph and Mary offered two turtle doves as a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. In verse 27, he explains that Joseph and Mary brought Jesus into the temple to do for him according to the custom of the law. And in verse 29, Luke writes that when Joseph and Mary had performed all these things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the point that's being made with this repetition in reference to the law of the Lord, is that Joseph and Mary were God-fearing parents. They were God-fearing people. Because they loved the Lord, they wanted to keep his commandments. And of course, Joseph and Mary faced several challenges as they tried to establish a godly home and family. As has already been noted in previous sermons, Mary was supernaturally impregnated prior to being married. Joseph concluded that this from this that she had been unfaithful to him. Uh, That misunderstanding was effectively cleared up when the angel visited Joseph and explained the truth of the situation. But the general public was not given the privilege of that information. The general public didn't know that about Mary. They continued to think that Mary had behaved immorally. And because Joseph proceeded to marry Mary while she was pregnant, people assumed Joseph must have been the father. Uh, So Joseph, very likely, was thought of within the community as having behaved immorally as well. Another challenge Joseph and Mary faced was impoverishment. Uh, Luke is discreet in the way that he lets his readers know that Joseph and Mary were poor, um, but it's apparent from verse 24 that they were. You see, according to Leviticus 12, Mothers were commanded to bring two sacrifices to the priest after the days of her purification. She was supposed to bring a lamb for a burnt offering and a turtle dove for a sin offering. But God's law had a provision for poor women. Since it would have been a heavy financial burden for a poor woman to offer a lamb as a burnt offering, the law permitted poor women to bring a turtle dove instead of the lamb. And what Luke tells us in verse 24 is that Joseph and Mary brought two turtle doves. Um, this is how we know that they were poor. They, for if they were not poor, they would have brought a lamb and a turtle dove. So Joseph and Mary faced a few challenges when trying to establish a godly home and family. 
Nevertheless, they prevailed in establishing a godly home and family. By faith, they prevailed and the Lord blessed them. Um, They didn't let people's assumptions about them get in the way of what the Lord had called them to do. And they made do with whatever financial resources the Lord was pleased to give to them. Which is to say, despite their challenges, Jesus was raised and nurtured in a loving home by God-fearing parents. And it's, it's this family where Jesus learned the scriptures. It's this family where he learned to worship. It's this family where he learned to pray. It's this family where he learned to love. It's this family where he learned to persevere through trials and suffering. It's the family here that where he grew and became strong in spirit and was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. This is the family where Jesus was raised and nurtured for the calling that was upon him. There were many things this family didn't have. They didn't have prestige. They didn't have money. They didn't have luxury. But none of that mattered because of what they did have. They did have the fear of God in their home. They did have loving and nurturing parents in the home. They did have the grace of God upon them. So in this regard, Jesus was given exactly what he needed as a young growing child to grow into the man that the Lord had called him to be. Now children, I submit to you that God has done something very similar for you today. Uh, Your family might not be the most popular family on the block. Uh, Your family might not have a lot of money. Your parents might not share your interests in music or fashion or entertainment, but none of that matters because of what you do have. By God's grace, you have a family where you're able to learn the scriptures. You have a family where you're able to learn to worship. You have a family where you're able to learn to pray, where you're able to learn to love where you're able to learn to persevere through trials and through sufferings. You have a family that's nurturing you, developing you, educating you, encouraging you, sustaining you, and praying that you'll become strong in spirit, be filled with wisdom, and that God's grace will be upon you. Just as Jesus was raised in a faithful family with parents who loved God and desired to serve the Lord in obedience, so you, dear children, so you are being raised in a faithful family with parents who love God and desire to serve him in obedience. Your parents may not be perfect, but neither were Joseph and Mary. Yet even in their imperfection, by the grace of God, Joseph and Mary maintain a home where Jesus and their other children were able to be raised in the training and admonition of the Lord. And this is true for you, children, as well. By the grace of God, your parents are maintaining a home where you're being raised in the training and admonition of the Lord. If this were not the case, then you wouldn't be sitting here right now. You'd be doing something else. Uh, But your parents are raising you to know the scriptures and to worship the Lord, so they require you to be here. And that, dear children, is an immense 
blessing. Like Timothy, you're being taught the holy scriptures from your childhood, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. It's my prayer, children. It's my prayer for each one of you that you prosper under the faithfulness of your parents. Like Jesus prospered under the faithfulness of his parents and Timothy prospered under the faithfulness of his mother and grandmother, my prayer is that you will prosper under the faithfulness of your parents. That God's grace will be upon you so that you walk in the way of righteousness from your youth. And then when you grow old, and your head is covered with a crown of silver hair, you'll be like Simeon and Anna. You'll have truth, discernment, and wisdom to share with other people. Your godly character will reveal itself in reverence, temperance, and faithfulness in all things. And you'll rejoice in knowing the Lord and serving his people every day of your Christian walk up until the day, and including the day, when you can rejoice as Simeon did, that the Lord is letting you, his servant, depart in peace. Amen, and let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.